Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Today I have with me Mark Rushduni, president of the Chalcedon Foundation. I've asked him to come and discuss one of his father's essays written back in 1972 entitled Moral Force, which prompted me to pose the question, what motivates you? As I recently read through this essay, I realized the clarity with which Dr. Rushduni laid out the battlefield, if you will, as he identified the competing forces of those that lie behind the Christian life and service and those which govern humanism. So, Mark, thanks for making yourself available for this discussion. Glad to be with you, Andrea. In the essay, your father pointed out that when Scripture says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, it is telling us much about the battle between those in Christ and those at war with him. And he lays out a progression, if you would, of defiance and disobedience and where a society ends up that follows this progression. Would you talk about that for a bit as we start this discussion? Well, the the undergirding the entire Bible is the supposition that God is the creator and Lord. He is the sovereign God, and therefore all men are responsible to him. And the Bible presents the history of humanity and the history of all his civilization in the context of his moral rebellion. So all of the Bible is framed in the context that man has a problem, and it's a moral problem, that man is a rebel against God, and man has to address this problem, and he has to fix the consequences of it, which are sin and death. And that takes us, obviously, to the atonement of Christ. But man has to address this in his daily life. The Christian has to come to the place where saying, I am a sinner and I can only serve my God if I submit myself to him self-consciously in faith and obedience. So the basic problem of man is moral. Therefore, we have to address all of human history, including our own personal history, from that moral context. So the passage that first appears in Deuteronomy and is then quoted by Jesus himself during his temptation actually, I think, says more than a lot of people normally frame it. When the Bible says man doesn't live by bread alone, it's making the observation and the statement that man is more than his physical needs. And when you remove every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, you're basically identifying the death sentence that's on all men. So in a lot of ways, we have a system, humanism in place, that's trying to have man live apart from God's word. And as a result of that, there's a a trip, a journey that fallen man is on. And your father brings in a couple of things that at first when I read it, I would think, well, what does this have to do with anything? And he talks about when you replace truth, then man focuses on aesthetics. What did he mean by that? It means that when you don't have 
this moral perspective that there is a standard, that there is a truth, there is a righteousness that comes from God, then you replace it with the the material. And therefore, man has to convince himself that he understands the material world and he, in fact, can define what is beautiful. And so he becomes obsessed with appearances because he's obsessed really with the material world. And this is complicated, obviously, by the the modern perspective of Darwinism, which really is a a religion because it goes back to the, the origin of man. And man is basically a physical being, and all the, our understanding of man, according to Darwinism, is in terms of the, the physical. And therefore, the physical is 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 essential to modern man. And in their arrogance, modern man wants to say preen himself, basically, in the belief that he knows what is good and beautiful. And that's why we have so much absurdity in in modern art and entertainment. It's defined now as as beauty. It's it's defined as art. It's defined as culture to the point of absurdity. Because man is determined that uh, he is going to decide the nature of the physical world in which he lives. So he makes the connection then. So we're going to focus on what's beautiful, and we have people who are of the upper echelon who appreciate the arts, and so. The fact that the arts are often disconnected from man's moral responsibility, he says that the progression then goes from aesthetics to destruction and violence. Explain that connection. There's a passage in Isaiah 5, verse 20, that we need to remember constantly because it really is describing man today in a way that's easy to understand, particularly in very recent and and current times. Isaiah pronounces a woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light, light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's it's exactly what we see going on in our culture today, whether it's transgenderism, morality, anything else. It's it's inverting what God says because man has to redefine God's world. But my father makes a point in that essay you're referring to that if you don't have moral force, all you have left is physical force and statism. But men realize that's a problem, and so men try to borrow the ethics of uh, the Bible, the ethics of, of biblical morality, and they just redefine them. And that's exactly what Isaiah is talking about, is calling evil good and good evil, because they're trying to get an artificial moral authority behind their their force, because they know pure force, saying something and demanding it is is very different from having it being actual a moral force. And that's why we get so many redefinitions to the point of absurdity today, because they're trying to borrow a moral force that they do not have, but they know they need some sort of moral force to back themselves up. And so he makes the point, and he puts this phrase in quotes, direct action. In other words, if you can't convince people of the morality of your position, all that's left is pressure, coercion, and this direct action. So that instead of ideas, due process, and legislation, he says you'll see a abundance of executive orders. In other words, we're going to bypass the process and we're just going to say 
this is what's true. And he says that contributes a lot to the violence that will then result. Talk a little bit about that. Humanism depends upon raw force because it doesn't have any moral force to it. Darwinism, by definition, doesn't really have any moral force to it. It's attempting to describe everything in terms of purely the physics of matter. And so it has to borrow Christian ethics and declare some things good and some things bad. And we see that very much in politics, how they try to frame things in terms of a moral ethic without any real standard of uh, ethics, but they need that uh, authority behind them. But humanism is power because it doesn't have a moral force. It always depends upon physical force. And we see that very clearly in totalitarian regimes, you know, Russia, um, China, North Korea, and such. They depend very much on military power. You will comply or else. There's no real ethics involved. The only uh, good, they say, is the what they call the revolution, perhaps. Uh, in communism, they'll say the revolution is good and it's moving us in the right direction. Therefore, if you're against us, you're counter-revolutionary. And that's the, the moral violation under communism. You're, you're counter-revolutionary. In the West, we have force in the forms of executive orders that have been very common in the last uh, 20 years. An executive order is, as it, the name implies, a directive to executive departments on enforcing the law anymore. It is very often saying this is the new law, at least for the executive branch. And very often when Congress has not wanted to pass something, there'll be an executive order saying, well, this is now the policy in the executive branch. But it's, it's a, it's a form of, you know, coercion. We don't have any legal authority. And therefore we are going to push it through by force. So this a direct action. Uh, you see this very often on the left, and the and conservatives don't really understand why the left just goes ahead and does something. And right. conservatives are saying, "No, that's not legal. Let's let's just walk that back." That that's a that, one of the weaknesses of conservatives. They're just trying to walk things back, where liberals will just make policy and say, "This is the way it's going to be." They understand that this this necessity to use force because they believe in revolutions. You see that, and again, that comes with the whole modern idea that revolutions will produce something good comes from Darwin, because Darwin said we came from chaos, we came from struggle, and that's how uh, biological process improved the species and they apply that to uh, culture to civilization and saying uh, what is old and stagnant is really retarding development and therefore you just have to get rid of the old and something better is going to come out of it so it's a a true belief in the regenerative power of of revolution of force and you see this this very much in the modern world not just in politics and in in the state but you also see that uh, in in the culture, in in education, is very much that way. We will force this on the schools, and it's going to produce a better world. We don't know how, but it's going to produce a better world if we just force the issue. Your father actually equates the direct action of executive orders and bureaucratic policies that must be adhered to 
in the same category as bombs and assassination. In each case, what this direct action is demonstrating is, or he says, it's an admission of moral bankruptcy. And he says the old saying that the thing to do when you run out of ideas is to shout louder. And I think you'd agree that we live in a culture now, especially with a corrupted media that just shouts louder. I saw a video clip of the current president of our country telling people that if you live in a hurricane area, it's best to have a vaccination. And talk about absurdity. Why? The the rain won't hit you. The wind won't blow down your house. So it, it really struck me, even though this was written back in 1972, so we are talking 50 years ago that your father really saw the base of both ideologies and the results of when the Christian faith basically tries to cooperate with humanism. My dad said that of, of Marxism at the university because he, he went to, he was at the university in the 1930s into the forties. That was uh, during the depression and leading up and into the war. And before the war and into the war, communism was openly avowed in many areas. There were communist parties active in, in the United States. It wasn't really until the Cold War that communism became a dirty word in politics, and it became more out of fashion, even though it didn't disappear. But he said that at the university, these ideas and communism versus capital were extensively discussed, but he said it was usually done in a civil manner. And people used to be able to disagree, but it was in the context of the necessity of of uh, of discussion and intellectual ideas. That that whole concept is largely out. Even talk shows on television or on radio, highly partisan, one-sided. And if they engage with other ideas, there's usually a shouting or, or name-calling. You see, when you have moral force on your side, there's a, a way in which you can calmly say, you know, like Luther, here I stand, I can do no other and you can rely upon that moral force, that idea, and you can believe in, in a due process and a discussion because you, if you believe you're ultimately morally right, you don't have to play dirty, so to speak. You can believe that, that people can have liberty dis to disagree if you believe that you are, are in the right. But right. when you resort to force and name calling, you know, reliance upon liberty and due process kind of disappears and all that remains is, 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 is force. Of course, the whole idea of morality and, and a moral force depends upon a faith and it's the source of your, your moral character, your moral beliefs. And so ultimately it, it all comes down to, to religion. And my father wants to define religion as a, as what you believe about is ultimately true. And what you believe is ultimately true is going to be the source of your morality. And if you believe God is sovereign, and this is hard for, for a lot of Christians, if you believe God is sovereign, you can go about your work even when things look bad because you know how things turn out. The Bible is interesting. We, we sometimes forget the Bible gives us the, the end of the story to which we're moving. 
And of course, your, your eschatology and what you believe man will experience in that story varies, but ultimately God wins and there's an ultimate final judgment. And so we can stand upon the certainty that in the big scheme of things, we're moving forward and that what we believe will be vindicated. And though we sometimes can say with the martyrs in heaven, how long, O Lord, and we see a big direction to all of, of human history. And that's what we're given in the Bible. We're not just given here, you are, do this, do that. It's not just a series of do's and don'ts. It's a, it's a series of do's and don'ts in this big context of who you are and what God is doing in history. Because you're the redeemed of God, you are part of that bigger picture of what God is doing in history. And But there's a certainty to that that gives you a, a moral force. Not that, not that Christians don't sometimes abuse that or take that in a wrong direction, but we have that certainty that, that God is in charge. So when I pose the question, what motivates you, really what the question is implying is, what's the moral force behind how you live your life, how you make your decisions, how you determine right and wrong? And your dad points out early on in this essay, and I'll quote it, attempts to offer political salvation always lead to a decay of moral force because the state cannot provide men with a faith for living nor with moral character. The state itself must rely on the people for these things. The state is a mirror of the faith and hopes of the people, and it cannot generate in and of itself what its members lack. As a result, the religious and moral collapse of a people creates a crisis for the state. The moral emptiness of a people becomes the moral emptiness of the state. And your father was always good at pointing the finger where it belonged. Instead of saying, look what our government's doing, look what they're they're oppressing us, the very concept that the state is a mirror of the faith and hopes of the people really is an indictment on what we should be doing in terms of the Great Commission. Right. It comes down to our personal uh, responsibility. And uh, you can't have the blessings of uh, the context of a Christian culture without Christian people. And this is what we see in American history and our current situation is America has lost its Christian faith and therefore it has so deviated from its original supposition that it's no longer functioning as it did because it was originally designed to live under a people with a, a much different ethical perspective. There used to be such a thing called the Puritan work ethic and long after Puritanism declined, the Puritan work ethic, which was basically a, a result of um, the belief in the priesthood of all believers, was that you know your work served God, and therefore you served God by doing your work, whether it was as, as a farmer or a carpenter or a, a lawyer. You did that to the best of your ability, and you worked hard, and you gave someone um, a quality product or service for the money, and. We've lost that sense because we don't have the ethics. You know, I was in uh, 
went through this drive-through window at Starbucks, and all while they're waiting at the window for your drink, they, they sometimes engage you in conversation. One of the conversations they often do is, uh, "What are you doing today? Anything interesting?" And I said, "No, I'm going to work." And they'll often say something, "Well, you know, you've got to make a dollar. You've got to, you know, do this." In other words, work is is depreciated because that no people don't have any context for what their work or the importance of their work. And this is true even of uh, Christians. They, they they lose the big context of who they are and what they should be doing because they don't have any uh, concept of the kingdom of God. They're just poor wayfaring strangers uh, waiting to be raptured to heaven or waiting for their eternal life to come when they die. But they, they have no purpose and no context in, in what life is really about. So something that comes across frequently in my father's writings is the the joy there is in serving God. He lived in some pretty horrible times, and a great influence on his life was a previous generation that had gone through genocide. He died in 2001. He saw a tremendous amount of the, uh, the 20th century and the decline of our culture. But there was an optimism in him because he believed he was on the winning side of time and eternity. That's, you know, who we are. That's where we're going because we have this, this moral context and an understanding, not, not just of our lives, but of all of human history. It should give the Christian an energy to go about life despite the problems that they have, despite what they see in the culture around them, because, you know, God is not going to be mocked and what evil men do is not going to reign supreme. It frustrates me when I hear Christians say something to the effect that uh, things are as bad as they could possibly get. They don't know much about history. Right, right. Uh, there have been some horrible things, you know, that have gone on in history, and things are really looking quite good compared to a lot of periods in history for, for a lot of uh, people. And so we have every reason to be optimistic about the big picture. So one of the things that is often a criticism of your dad, but I think it's because, as you said, people don't have a wider vision. Because he had a faith in the ultimate harmony of interests with men living according to the way God prescribed, as opposed to a conflict of interest, he could pinpoint error. He could make accurate diagnoses that would say, uh, you know what, if you don't change this, the patient might die. But behind all that was, as you pointed out, this understanding that we are in a portion of history and it really isn't about us. He didn't think it was about him. He thought it was about the kingdom and that the kingdom included everything that exists. Because if Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, then there's not an area where he doesn't preside and prevail. But he could see that politics, especially, had become pragmatic and relativistic. And as a result, instead of trying to get the axe to the root, there became a policy of bribe and payoff. In other words, we can't really communicate our principles. So what we have to do is pay off the bad guys, pay off our opponents, and that somehow or other, we'll achieve something good by doing it. I thought that was incredibly insightful. Do you have anything additional to add to that perspective? He, he would often bring up the, the issue of the, 
in terms of the big perspective that we have on life, the harmony of interest uh, versus the conflict of interests. And he said many people falsely adopt the idea of the conflict of interest, which is essentially Darwinian. It's a belief in the ultimacy of chaos, which was revived by uh, Darwin as opposed to the idea that uh, this is a world governed by its sovereign creator. Because if you believe God is sovereign, he's created this world, and he's redeeming it, you believe in in the in an, an ultimate order. If you believe in Darwin's perspective, you believe in the conflict of interest, and, and you believe the world is governed by violence um, and revolution, and it's it's ultimately, therefore, going to have conflict. And so there's a reason to be, in the Darwinian view, to be angry and to be hateful. And to think of it's a dog-eat-dog world and it's me against you. And so uh, this Darwinian view of the conflict of interest leads to envy and greed. It says that if we want something, we better just take it. And so if we would have politics today of, of confiscation, either uh, by armed revolution or by the decree of the government. And so you have taxation and taking money from the productive element of society, giving it to the unproductive. And you try to build a better world by taking for from the citizens. But if you believe in there's a harmony of interest, then you work through the in liberty of individuals. You work through things like, uh, you know, thou shalt not steal, which is the basis of basis of private property. You believe that the, the way to move forward will be through following God's commands to work. Therefore, you have industry, enterprise, thrift. If you believe in, in private property, you believe savings is the way, and that's the basis of capitalism. It's not uh, Capitalism isn't a religion. It's an economic understanding in terms of thou shalt not steal. Personal responsibility and uh, personal duty, you see, so a harmony of interest gives people opportunities and it puts authority and power down at the individual level. Conflict of interest always has is saying that other people are a threat to you. Therefore, we will control this block or the other, whoever we define as the bad guys. And at various times, you know, Jews have been defined as the bad guys or blacks or Asians or this nation, or that nation is is the bad guy. We will protect you from them. So this idea of uh, the conflict of interest, politicians uh, appeal to the conflict of interest constantly in saying the problem is with the wealthy or the white man. It's white privilege. It's uh, one problem or another, and we are going to take care of that problem in society. And that's why we need more and more power. And so politicians appeal to the conflict of interest constantly because it's a method of, of, of getting themselves elected. And so they uh, appeal to these voter blocks, to these to special interests. And so they, this is what, exactly what we have in our culture today is we have one special interest opposed to uh, other special interests because we believe that ultimately that there's a conflict and if one man gets ahead or one one group gets ahead it's at the expense of another's 
parents even do the payoff with their children that if you have a brat who is constantly not listening to you, but you're preoccupied with other things and trying to solve character issues other than the way the Bible prescribes to, that you have people paying off their kids with toys, with the latest technology. And you could even say that this transfers to other places like the church, that instead of preaching the reality of sin and the need for repentance, we want people to feel good and give them extra perks so they can build their self-esteem as they're waiting, as you pointed out earlier, for their reward in whatever way it comes in. So it really is important for us to rethink what motivates us. Does what motivate us is so that I won't have a headache and I can stop this noise around me or doing the hard work of instilling biblical principles in our own lives and the lives of our children and the lives of our community. Having a moral perspective on life leads to a sense of duty and self-responsibility. Whereas if you believe in a dog-eat-dog world, it's I need to get what I can when I can. And it's a very, very different approach to dealing with other people and dealing with problems that we perceive and even defining what those problems are. Your father quotes Samuel Rutherford, best known for his book, Lex Rex, who says, duties are ours, events are the Lord's. And then your father comments, men who have God for their sovereign can neither believe that evil shall triumph, nor can they tolerate it. Their lives are governed by moral force, and they govern everything they can control with that same moral force. It seems to me that that's the prescription of how you go about your business, the, the work of the kingdom that we're supposed to do, despite all the noise around us. Because if we focus on the noise, then we're actually allowing ourselves to be motivated by this counterfeit, don't you think? Yeah. Johannes Kepler, who was an astronomer for several hundred years ago, had an interesting line that I comes back to me constantly in describing how he tried to figure out, in his case, something of, of science and how the heavenly bodies worked. He said he was trying to figure out God's creation. So he was trying, he said, I was trying to think God's thoughts after him. It's assuming that, that this is God's creation and you're trying to figure out what is there. Well, if we assumed that this is God's world, then we assume that, that God has rules for us. We assume that we have a place in this, and that place is one of submission and, and obedience, and it gives us a whole context for life. And so much in the in Darwin's world is this conflict of interest, this struggle to survive. And it, in so many ways, it's a negation, and it leads to uh, self-destruction. As Christians, we need to, to be able to recognize where these things are, are going and it's it's not good and therefore we shouldn't hitch our wagon to it as essentially a negation of of the moral world that God has created and our responsibility so clearly the bible gives us meaning to our lives we're not mistakes we didn't just show up here and god didn't have a plan and yet those who have embraced this humanistic world view we see a proliferation of addictions, intoxication to, to hide from our problems, whether it's gambling, sexual promiscuity, 
or even the drug abuse that has been so well documented. In other words, men lose hope for meaning, and so they continue to throw themselves into a cesspool of meaninglessness because it doesn't matter. But that's not what the Christian is called for. Again, your father quotes Samuel Rutherford when he says, the thing which we mistake is the want of victory. We hold that to be the mark of one that hath no grace. Nay, say I, the want of fighting were a mark of no grace. That's the end of the quote. And then your father comments, all too many who call themselves Christian lack this mark. There is no fight in them as they face evils and troubles, only a long whine. I think that one of the things that your father's work and Chalcedon in general has existed to communicate and to help people achieve is the fact that we are under a mandate. And this mandate isn't to complain and isn't to identify just how bad it is, but to plant in order to be able to grow for the future. Because if we think that it's all going to go away and there's going to be nothing left to build on, then as you put it, we haven't read the end of the story. Right. There was a a term for uh, hippies in the uh, 60s, dropouts. And that's a fitting description of what a lot of people do. It's done in a different way today, but a lot of people and, and a lot of addiction, suicidal behavior is people who have no hope and they don't see any hope in, in the world around them. They, they chase it for a while and then it implodes upon them personally and they end up in a very destructive life cycle or, or if not suicide. And they're, they're essentially, they're, they're dropping out because there is no meaning. There is no fulfillment is, and there cannot be any fulfillment in rebellion against God. So uh, the Christian gospel holds an ultimate hope for people. And uh, my father always said, we're at the end of an age because humanism is failing. But the failure of humanism isn't going to lead to anything better, but it does set the stage for the disillusionment of large numbers of people. And hopefully the moving of the Holy Spirit and uh, a revival of Christian faith. The collapse of humanism doesn't automatically lead to a Christian order. We have to have build that base up of faithfulness and that understanding. And that has to be developed before we have something better. So people think that there's going to be a sudden turnaround and a sudden Christian outpouring. There may be, but it's going to be, I think, still in its infancy because Christians still haven't figured out what obedience to God even looks like. Yes. They just see the failure of the alternative, and there's going to be a, a period of transition. That's the, the real hope of why I encourage, Mark, people to get these volumes of your father's essays that he wrote during his times of active ministry as a as a writer and a theologian and a commentator on things that were happening because when you go back and you read these things you realize that his prophetic word you might say was he could see where this was going and along with that people could can then and should embrace what he felt was the remedy And the remedy was to place every area of life and thought under the dominion of Jesus Christ and his law word. So it's not like these diagnoses should lead us to say, oh, my gosh, it's all hopeless. Quite the contrary. A correct diagnosis 
and a correct prescription is actually what leads to a return of health and life in general. And that's why I think the term Christian reconstruction is so apt. He wrote that in an essay at the beginning of Chalcedon, and he stuck with it because it is a very apt description, because Christian reconstruction is a description, really, of the Christian's responsibility in times like this. We move forward, and we do what we can in our sphere of influence because we have a bigger picture, and we see the failure of humanism. We see the, the failure of rebellion against God. But we are trying to build in our little tiny portion of the kingdom something that will enable that kingdom to grow. That growth is ultimately by the power of the Holy Spirit and the regeneration of of people. And we hope that's going to come soon, but we don't know when it's going to. But we are the faithful. We are the remnant in, in the meantime. And Christian reconstruction can begin even if you are just a remnant. It doesn't necessarily mean you are going to build something very big. You know, the results aren't in our hands. Only the duty to move forward and to serve the kingdom as we are able is our responsibility. Yes. And Mark, I I appreciate you taking the time to flesh this out, but I do want to end with how your father closes the essay. He says, this is a religious conviction and moral force. Man was called to rule not to be ruled, to have dominion, not to be a subject. Apart from God, this is impossible. Under God, man has a mandate to reconstruct all things and the power of God to do it. So your closing words, Mark, God hasn't left us without the tools for victory, has he? No, he's given us our responsibility, and the fact uh, the, of of sin makes it very, very difficult. Our sin, the sin of the world, we can't do what Adam was given to do, certainly not perfectly, perhaps not well, but we move forward and we depend upon the Holy Spirit for the results. But when God commands something, that command stays in effect, and the fact that we are sinners and do it quite poorly shouldn't de- deflect us from the fact that that we are called, we are redeemed to service and to the, the, the kingdom of God. And so we have we have a, a glorious calling. You know, we've been given, a, in effect, by our redemption, a, a second chance to serve God, to serve him as the parable of the talents. Whatever God gives us, we use for his service. Listeners, I encourage you to make use of the many sales that Calcedon always has going. Somewhere or another, there's always a sale. But the volumes that I think are most instrumental to help you not only gain the perspective we've talked about, but give you your marching orders and the tools would be the three-volume set, Faith in Action, and also the three-volume set, An Informed Faith, both of which will give you an excellent commentary on 2022, much better than turning into any news station or reading any periodical that's trying to give political solutions, because these materials, these essays, these position papers help you see where to apply what God has given you in the jurisdiction he's given you. And I believe that some of the most successful people, some of which have passed on before us would agree. And they told me in person that it was the work of Dr. Rush Dooney and his insight and his 
allegiance to every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God that sparked their ministries and helped them, some of which whose names you would be very well familiar with, would say that gave them the impetus to use the gifts that God gave them. And I know, Mark, you would agree because you knew many of them as well. Yes. All right. Well, thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.